from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 26th. Today, a major settlement in a landmark opioid lawsuit. Florida Republicans seek to limit a voting rights amendment, plus butterflies in the border wall. On Tuesday, Purdue Pharma, the creator of OxyContin, agreed to settle a lawsuit with the state of Oklahoma. That lawsuit centered on Purdue's role in the opioid crisis. The addiction crisis facing our state and nation is a clear and present danger, but we are doing something about it today. This begins a new chapter for those struggling with addiction. Purdue Pharma has been accused of deceptively marketing the medication, of pushing it to doctors, of trying to get doctors to prescribe huge doses of it so they could make more money, and they've been accused of this for years. Katie Zesma is a national reporter for The Post. She's been following this Purdue Pharma lawsuit for a while. The company vigorously denies all of the allegations made against it. But Katie says that the $270 million settlement is still a huge step. And right now we have really thousands of lawsuits across the United States against Purdue and other opioid manufacturers and other people up and down the supply chain alleging that they contributed to the opioid crisis that we see now that's killing tens of thousands of people a year. This is a big deal because of all these thousands of lawsuits that are happening right now, this is the first one to settle. And there is a belief that this could potentially set the floor for what settlement could be in all of these other lawsuits. And when you say Purdue Pharma's role in the opioid crisis, what does that actually mean? What did they do? In the 1990s, Purdue Pharma introduced OxyContin, which was then hailed as, as a wonder drug for pain. It went widely out onto the market. In these various lawsuits, there are allegations that Purdue Pharma pushed higher doses of OxyContin to doctors to prescribe it to patients who didn't really need it, to give patients doses that were much, much higher than what they needed. And according to one lawsuit, at least in Massachusetts, what they're saying is that um, when Purdue prescribed the higher doses, they made more money. So they had a financial incentive to try to get doctors to prescribe higher doses of OxyContin. So they would basically say, for a patient experiencing this, like, this is how much you, doctor, should be giving them. Yes, and also that they just push the drug incredibly hard on doctors as a solution for pain, for any kind of pain. Here was this drug that really worked and that you should use and And I imagine they may not have talked about the addiction side of things. Precisely. The most powerful pain medicines for the most severe pain are called opioids. They, too, are only available by prescription. Opioids are very natural medicines. So according to these suits, you know, Purdue has said this drug is is not addictive. It's, it's, you know, it's revolutionary. It's new. It, It will take care of your pain, and you should prescribe it to people who are in pain. They don't wear out. They go on working. They do not have serious medical side effects. And so these drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications, should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. And the fact that Purdue is settling in this case, what does that mean for other 
big drug companies that have potentially had a role in the opioid crisis? You know, I think that remains to be seen. Once there is a settlement, that is kind of the preferred option. The really big thing that's happening is there's about 1,600 cases against pharmaceutical companies and pharmaceutical distributors that are consolidated in a massive federal case in Cleveland. It's called multi-district litigation, and it's someone has told me that they think it's the most complex litigation in the entire history of the United States, even more complex than the tobacco legislation that settled, you know, in the, in the late 1990s. So um, they've been in settlement talks for more than a year, and, you know, people believe that this could potentially influence what is happening in all of these other thousands of lawsuits across the country. The other thing that it does is that Purdue has acknowledged that it is considering bankruptcy as an option. We spoke with the, the CEO of Purdue, and he he told The Washington Post that, you know, they are considering bankruptcy as an option. And the settlement could influence strategy in some of the lawsuits that are happening with that hanging over it. We know that bankruptcy is an option that is on the table as, as being looked at among many other options as the company faces this rash of lawsuits. Does Purdue plan to file bankruptcy? Yeah, I don't. I, don't, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't describe it as you know with any weight. It is an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are considering it, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, but we have we've really made no decisions mm-hmm. on what course of action to pursue. You know, and you know a lot depends upon you know what unfolds and you know and the weeks and months ahead. If Purdue files for bankruptcy, then what is the impact on all the other legal cases that are going on against them? So according to legal experts that we've talked to, it, it could potentially, um, you know, halt litigation in, in in many of these cases. And also it's it's much, much more difficult to get a judgment from a bankruptcy court than it is from a civil court. So, um, you know, according to the experts we, t- we talked to, it could kind of put the brakes on a lot of things that are that are happening the $270 million in this settlement, who is that going to go to? Most of the money is going to fund the Center for Research, Education, and Treatment of Addiction and Pain at Oklahoma State University in Tulsa. Um, you know, we're still kind of fleshing out details of exactly what that is going, what that's going to do and exactly how, it, how it's going to work. $270 million is really not a lot of money compared to what, you know, the state itself is saying is going to be needed to help, you know, abate the cost of what the opioid epidemic has done to the state over the past 20 years or so. The fact that this case is being settled, what does that say about our understanding of the genesis of the opioid crisis? Well, I think one thing settlement does is that it keeps it out of a trial. There was a trial, um, you know, for Purdue at least. There are other companies that are that are involved in this that, that may have to go to trial as well. But for Purdue, you know, it, it keeps them out of a trial and it keeps them away from a jury of Oklahomans who would see evidence that the state would present, you know, alleging that they deceptively marketed these drugs and that they contributed to thousands of Oklahomans dying. You know, there's a a lot that we will not now see because of this because of this settlement. There's a lot of you know information that that won't be out there in open court because of this settlement. So is this a win for the state of Oklahoma? Is this a win for victims of the opioid crisis? I think it's a little more complicated than that. There are a lot of people who say they they want to see these drug companies in court. They want them before a jury. They want all of the evidence. And that's how they feel that they will, you know, get some justice from this. And now they're not going to get that, at least in Oklahoma. So I think it's it's a bit of a draw. And, and, you know, I would not be surprised if there are people in Oklahoma who are disappointed by this. 
Katie Zesma is a national reporter for The Post. Last year, a ballot measure called Amendment 4 changed voting rights for felons in Florida. So Amendment 4 adds language to the Florida Constitution that calls for felons to automatically get their voting rights back after they've completed the terms of their sentences and if their felony conviction was not for murder or for a felony sexual offense. Amy Gardner covers voting issues for The Post. And what was interesting about that amendment was that it had bipartisan support. For example, both the Koch brothers and the ACLU helped it pass. The amendment took effect in January. But now... Republicans in the Florida legislature are considering a number of definitions of these categories that are excluded under Amendment 4. Basically, they're thinking about expanding the types of convictions that disqualify you from ever having your voting rights reinstated. And by doing that, the state legislature and Republican Governor Ron DeSantis could reduce the number of people who would benefit from the new law. You hear folks saying that this is voter suppression, which is also kind of a a fighting phrase for Democrats right now. So it's very partisan. It's very heated. And you can see that it's becoming quite divisive. Amy says that the amendment was a big deal in Florida. It was a huge deal. Florida, until January 8th, when the amendment went into effect, had the most restrictive rules regarding felons and voting rights. It was the largest enfranchisement of voters in this country since the 1960s, when you had several civil rights acts and also a constitutional amendment banning a poll tax, laws preventing other kinds of, you know, sort of Jim Crow laws, literacy tests, that kind of thing. Oh, wow. So the largest expansion of voting rights to any group of people since the 60s? Exactly. Huge. So this passed in November of last year. And then what happened? So soon after Amendment 4 passed so overwhelmingly, but soon after that, The governor-elect, who also won by a pretty narrow margin, Ron DeSantis, beat Andrew Gillum by about 30,000 votes, said that he didn't think that Amendment 4 should go into effect until the Republican-controlled legislature had a chance to enact sort of implementing legislation. So basically, Governor DeSantis was saying, look, the amendment that was passed by all these voters, it's worded pretty simply, and maybe we need to go in and and have a little bit more language to clarify exactly who can and who cannot vote. That was the reason why this is going to the state legislature. What are they doing? They're adding murder charges and and even, for instance, attempted murder, which supporters of Amendment 4 think is ridiculous. They're also, in some cases, creating a really long list of offenses that have anything to do with sex, like prostitution or selling pornography near a school or lewd and lascivious behavior that advocates for Amendment 4 say goes way far afield from the intent of voters and supporters of the amendment. And then third, they're fairly broadly defining what completion of sentence means, even including 
costs and restitution when they have been converted into a civil lien. And that's really complicated and jargony, but it's important because a judge will tell you, you're done. You've served your sentence. You've paid your dues. You haven't finished paying your restitution because it's a lot of money. You owe, let's say, $100,000 because you are guilty of fraud or something. But I'm going to convert that into a civil lien and allow you to pay that back slowly, basically for the rest of your life. That category of felon would conceivably be excluded from ever voting again in Florida for the rest of their life if they are never fully paid up. And those are some of the folks that we saw coming to Tallahassee this week to tell lawmakers, please don't do it this way. I had to sit down with the probation officer and we went through everything. And it was my complete and total understanding that at that point, when I signed that paper, I was free. There was a woman who testified yesterday who owes $59 million in restitution. I'm like a citizen again, except for I still can't vote. I'll never vote in this state again at this rate. And I can imagine that it's even more politically heated because of the ways that giving all these people their voting rights back would change the potential political landscape for the state of Florida. I think that the attention to expansion of voting rights has a strong relationship to the attention to criminal justice reform in our country. There is a view that sentencing structures across the country are unfair and racist. And you can see that convictions are disproportionately affecting black people. In 2016, in the presidential race, more than 9 million people voted. That's a lot of people. Florida's huge. It's the ultimate swing state. So in a state where the 2000 presidential election was decided by fewer than 1,000 votes, where the Senate race in 2018 was decided by fewer than 10,000 votes, 1.4 million voters added to the electorate is huge. This issue has become maybe hopelessly polarized, and that's not going to end before 2020. Amy Gardner is a national political reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Migration at the southern border. I went there because there's an interesting drama unfolding there that involves butterflies and it involves immigration and the border wall. The National Butterfly Center is located right on the border in Mission, Texas, on the edge of the Rio Grande River. Mexico is right there, not so far away. Dan Zak is a features writer for The Post. He says that monarchs represent a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For some Native American tribes, they mean death. For some Christians, they're a symbol of rebirth. But now their existence is being threatened in one key area. The Trump administration's plans to build a border wall include cutting through the Butterfly Center. They would essentially cut off 70 acres of a 100-acre sanctuary. And the struggle there, I think, encapsulates our kind of national debate and argument about immigration and the destruction of the environment, the building of walls, and kind of in the middle of it, representing the human struggle is this emblematic monarch, which migrates up through Texas. Immigration activists look to the butterfly, especially the monarch butterfly, as a symbol of freedom to move beyond borders and boundaries. And this is all happening as monarch butterflies are already facing an existential crisis. It's been referred to by some as an insect apocalypse. 
partly due to climate change. And among the most imperiled insects are butterflies. And so I think what butterflies have come to represent these days is loss. The eastern population is a third the size of its 1996 count. The western population is 0.6 the size of its historical average. And just in the past year, the population dropped by 86%. So everyone is real freaked out about the western monarchs. But overall, both populations, there is a trend of decline and a sense of loss over the past few decades. And we'll see the disappearance of a phenomenon unlike any other in nature. Dan Zak is a features writer for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to support the show and the work that we do here, we have a special offer for you, our Post Reports listeners. A 50% discount on an unlimited digital subscription, which means you get access to our website and our apps for less than a dollar a week. Visit postreports.com offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>